0: Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Andrea Pride, and after a break of a few months now, I'd like to welcome back Karsten Gunsaga to the podcast to tell us about the developments at the September IFRS Interpretations Committee meeting on 4th and f- 14th and 15th of September. So, welcome back, Karsten.
1: Thank you, Andrea. Glad to be back again.
0: So. After the summer, we've got um, quite a financial instruments focused meeting with papers dealing with IFRS 16, is 32 and IFRS 9 as well. And as usual, we had comments considered on previously issued tentative agenda decisions, and there were also two interesting new issues considered by the committee for the first time. So let's start with the comments received on the previous tentative agenda decisions. And there were two, accounting for warrants that are classified as financial liabilities on initial recognition and non-refundable value-added tax on lease payments. So I'm suggesting we don't talk about the accounting for warrants that are classified as financial liabilities and in initial recognition and whether an issuer should reclassify derivative financial liability to equity after initial recognition in particular circumstances. Um, the committee had concluded that this was an issue that was too narrow to address and that seemed to be borne out by the small number of comments on the tentative agenda decisions. So if you're interested in that issue, Carsten explained it all, everything you needed to know in episode 109. The other one we also talked about in episode 109, um, but it it was on non-refundable value-added tax on lease payments. And this was a submission where the committee decided to issue a tentative agenda decision without really giving any direction on the appropriate accounting, just noting that there was a lack of evidence that there is diversity and that the issue is material. So could you maybe give us a recap on this issue, please, Karsten?
1: Sure. So, so just as a quick reminder, at the March meeting, the IFRIC, IFRIC issued a tentative agenda decision, or TAD in response to a submission about how a lessee accounts for non-refundable value-added tax, or VAT, charged on lease payments. Um, as you mentioned, we covered this issue in our, in our previous April IFRS Talks podcast, so I will keep this short. In summary, this issue is about entities that pay VAT on their lease payments but are unable to fully recover that VAT from the tax authorities under applicable tax laws. The request essentially asks whether in applying IFRS 16, the lessee includes non-refundable VAT as part of the lease payments.
0: And what did the comment letters say about that and what did the committee decide
1: to do? Sure. So, so maybe before I start, just a quick reminder to folks that, you know, for any agenda decision that the committee votes to finalize, this is going to be subject to non-objection by the board under the revised due process handbook. So anything I share on those agenda decisions is still subject to board approval and the IFRIC update will only be published once the board has given its approval. So, the staff analysis on this matter noted that the comment letters received provided little additional evidence that non refundable VAT on lease payments is material to affected lessees and of diversity in the way lessees account for non refundable VAT on le- lease payments. There was a bit of debate at the committee whether this is actually factually true, as one comment letter in particular, which was from IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, Seem to indicate otherwise. However, that message was not really conveyed consistently in other comment letters, so that on balance and after some debate, the committee concluded that the criteria for adding a standard setting project to the work plan were not met. Therefore, in line with the TAD issued following the March meeting, at the September meeting, the IFRI confirmed not to add the standard setting project to the work plan and finalized the TAD with only minor wording changes. So there will be no further guidance on this matter from the committee. However, I did provide some additional thoughts in our April podcast. So if folks are interested in this topic, I I recommend to re-listen to our April podcast. In addition, you can also find some guidance on on this matter in some of the accounting literature. So, for example, the leases chapter in the PwC Manual of Accounting has an FAQ covering the PwC view on this matter.
0: Great, thanks, Carson. And we'll link both the uh, podcast and the and the um the, the FAQ in our talking points. Let's stick with IFRS 16 and leases. Um the committee was asked to provide input on an ISB project. So in November 2020, following a recommendation that came from the Interpretations Committee, the board was asked to undertake narrow scope standard setting. And in response to that, the ISB published an exposure draft on lease liability in sale and leaseback. Now that comment period ended at the end of March, the 29th of March 2021 and in May the ISB discussed a summary of the feedback. The committee was at this meeting asked to help the staff develop the project direction and to provide their views on the possible way forward. So Carson, could you tell us a bit about what the main proposals were in that exposure
1: draft? Sure. So so as you mentioned, this goes back to an agenda decision that the IFRIC issued back in, in June 2020. And that we covered in the podcast sometime last year. As a reminder, the IFRIC agenda decision that was issued at the time dealt with a situation when an entity enters into a sale leaseback transaction where payments for the leaseback are entirely variable. The, the IFRIC decision at the time dealt with the initial accounting at the date of the transaction. However, the IFRIC also noted during those discussions that IFRS 16 does not contain specific requirements dealing with the subsequent measurement of the liability arising from the leaseback and proposed that the board should clarify the subsequent measurement of that liability via standard setting. Now, the board agreed with this and issued an exposure draft to address this matter in November. 2020, and the staff has now analyzed the comment letters received on that exposure draft.
0: So were these proposals well received in the comment letters?
1: Well, on a, on a high level, whilst a large majority of respondents on the exposure draft agreed that there's a need to amend IFRS 16 to enhance the measurement requirements for sales-back transactions, only a minority of those respondents agreed with the proposed amendments. Mm. So a large majority actually disagreed with or you know, express concerns about aspects of the proposals. The staff had now prepared a paper with an analysis of the comment letters together with proposals on possible way f- ways forward and has asked committee members for their views on these possible ways forward to help develop the project direction and to provide input to the board on this matter. So, if these members were not asked to make any decisions, but instead they were asked to provide their views on the possible direction of the board. Of this board project
0: okay and what were those views what were the committee's views and possible ways forward
1: uh, oh boy I, <laughs> I have to say we had an intense debate and, and you know very mixed views at the committee on this one so so the staff paper mentioned or described four alternative approaches to address this matter you know which were which are called the expected payment approach you know which is what what was proposed in the exposure draft by the board uh, the imputed payment approach the components, componentized liability approach and the deferred gain approach. Now, the staff paper analyzes each of those four approaches comprehensively. I wasn't planning to go into any detail in this short podcast. So if you're interested in the details, I recommend you have a read of the staff paper, which describes how each of those potential approaches would work. Mm. Now, I think on a high level, I think it's fair to say. That views from IFRIC members varied substantially, and it was difficult to identify a clear direction or consensus across committee members. But nonetheless, I think the staff got some valuable input and quite quite a few ideas for the future direction of the project. Maybe maybe one final observation that I think may be of interest to folks. Several committee members thought that, you know, all of the approaches have its pros and cons, and you know, none of the approaches seem the obvious way to proceed. This, you know, this then triggered a discussion at the committee whether potentially the board may want to proceed with none of the alternative approaches. And it's, and it's that just formulate a principle that would essentially just say something along the lines that uh, prohibition of gain recognition would need to continue throughout the period of the leaseback. So I thought this was quite interesting. My sense is that this means that in addition to the alternative approaches described in the paper, there's now another potential option on the table for consideration, consideration which is you know, simply to formulate a principle for the subsequent accounting without prescribing a pat- particular approach.
0: Wow, so you have got now five approaches with people supporting each of those approaches. Um, that's quite complicated to analyse and, and move forward with. What do you think the next steps are going to be now to bring this issue to a resolution?
1: Well, the board will consider the input from the comment letters together with the input from the committee members at the future board meeting. Okay. I don't know when when it will, will be on the agenda exactly, but my guess is that this may be on the board's agenda as early as at the October meeting or maybe at the November or December meeting later this year.
0: Okay, so we look forward to that and maybe we'll come back to this topic again one day. Um, we've talked about two new topics for initial consideration. So let's let's look at those now. The first one was on the accounting for demand deposits with restrictions on use. Um, can you tell what us what the issue was here, please?
1: Sure. So so moving on to a complete completely new topic on the IFRIC agenda. I think this is this is a really interesting topic as well, as my sense is that this is quite common. And I also think that the analysis of the matter may come as a surprise to some entities. Mm. So, the submission describes a fact pattern in which an entity sells one of its businesses to a third party buyer. The sale agreement requires the entity to keep a specified amount of cash in a separate demand deposit to indemnify the buyer for potential warranty claims extending over several years. Now, The terms and conditions of the demand deposit do not prevent the entity from accessing amounts held in the demand deposit. So if the entity were to request any amounts from that demand deposit, it would immediately receive that amount. However, if the entity uses the cash held in that demand deposit for any purpose other than indemnifying the buyer, it would be in breach of its contractual obligation to the buyer. the question addressed to the committee was whether the entity includes the demand deposit as a component of cash and cash equivalents in the statement of cash flows and in the statement of financial position so in simplified terms in my own words assume an entity has cash in a separate bank account and there's a contractual agreement with a third party that imposes long-term restriction on how that cash can be used by the entity does that mean that the cash in that bank, that the cash in that bank account can no longer be presented as cash and cash equivalents? My sense is that these types of arrangements are quite common. Uh, these are similar arrangements, so this will likely affect many entities.
0: Okay, but the committee decided that it wouldn't add a project and instead issued a tentative agenda decision. Could you tell us why that was?
1: Sure. Well, that's because the committee felt that it could address the issue by issuing an agenda decision with additional explanatory material that would explain how IFRS standards apply to this situation. Now, let me explain the thought process on the applicable IFRS requirements for this particular fact pattern. So the proposed tentative agenda decision analyzes the issue separately for the following areas. First, requirements for the cash flow statements. Second, presentation in the statement of financial position. And third, disclosures. So let me explain the key messages from the proposed head for each of those areas first let's talk about the cash flow statement now is7 defines cash by stating that it comprises cash on hand and demand deposits and it includes no other requirements on when an item qualifies as cash as cash beyond that definition also is7 and is1 indicate that amounts included in cash and cash equivalents may be subject to restrictions and so restrictions on use do not necessarily prevent presentation as cash and cash equivalents. Based on this, the committee tentatively concluded that in this fact pattern, the restrictions on use of the amounts held in the demand deposits do not change the nature of the deposit as the entity can still access those amounts on demand, which means that despite those restrictions, the entity would still include the demand deposit as a component of cash and cash equivalent in its statement of cash flows. Second, Let's move on to the presentation in the statement of financial position. So IS-1 requires separate presentation of cash and cash equivalents in the statement of financial position. IS-1 also requires an entity to present additional line items in the statement of financial position when such presentation is relevant to an understanding of the entity's financial positions. The committee therefore concluded that in this fact pattern, the entity presents the demand deposit as cash and cash equivalents in its statement of financial position unless presenting it separately in additional line item is relevant to an understanding of the entity's financial position, which highlights that entities need to think about whether an additional line item in the balance sheet may be required in their particular circumstances. And finally, moving on to disclosures. So the TAD reminds entity about various disclosure requirements. So for example, entities need to disclose cash and cash equivalent, held that are not available for use by the group as required by IS7. And they also need to think about liquidity risk disclosures as required by IFRS7. So when looking at this fact pattern, my sense is that you know, the intuitive reaction from many would be, well, if there are contractual restrictions in place, which means that the cash is effectively not available to the entity for an extended period of time without breaching its contractual obligations with a third party, doesn't that mean that the cash is not available to meet short term commitments and so these amounts should not be presented as cash and cash equivalents? Well, actually, I think the analysis shows that this is not necessarily true. In fact, there was broad consensus at the committee that in this particular fact pattern, the demand deposit does meet the definition of cash and cash equivalents. However, entities would need to consider additional requirements for presentation and disclosures in IS1, IS7. And IFRS 7, which I explained in more detail in the TED. But a word of caution here. I think the outcome may vary where the facts are slightly different. You know, for example, where the restriction results from an arrangement with the bank rather than with a third party, the analysis is likely going to be quite different. So entities need to be very careful in their analysis based on their individual facts and circumstances.
0: Okay, thanks Carsten. And so with the facts and circumstance nature of the analysis and the fact that this might be different from what people um, might intuitively already be thinking, it's an important tentative gender decision to be aware of okay so the last thing is um, another new submission um, on cash received via electronic transfer as settlement for a financial asset who knew there were so many issues about cash um, could you tell us what this issue was about please
1: sure. so the committee received uh, you know another new submission about the recognition of cash received via an electronic transfer system a settlement for a financial asset more sp- specifically in the fact pattern described in the request the electronic transfer system has an automated settlement process that takes three working days to settle a cash transfer. All cash transfers made via the system are therefore settled, that is deposited in the recipient's bank account, two working days after they are initiated by the payer. Now, let's assume the entity has a trade receivable with the customer, and say at the reporting date, the customer has already initiated a cash transfer, via that electronic transfer system to settle the trade receivable. But the entity only receives the cash in its bank account two days after its reporting date. So the request asks whether the entity can de-recognize the trade receivable and recognize cash already on the date the transfer is, is initiated, you know, that is so at the reporting date rather than on the date the cash transfer is settled, that is after its reporting date.
0: Right. And again, the committee decided not to add a project and again, issue a tentative agenda decision. So again, could you tell us why?
1: Sure. So so again, this is because the committee felt that it could address the issue by issuing a a, a tentative agenda decision with additional explanatory material that would explain how IFRS standards apply to the situation. So first of all, the committee observed that this fact pattern involves the receipt of cash, as settlement for a trade receivable both the trade receivable and the cash are financial assets within the scope of IFRS 9 the entity therefore applies the derecognition guidance in IFRS 9 in determining the date on which to de-recognize, derecognize the trade receivable and the guidance on initial recognition in IFRS 9 in determining the date on which to recognize the cash so the committee observed that in the fact pattern described in the request the entity is neither purchasing nor selling a financial asset and therefore, the guidance in IFRS 9, which specifies requirements for a regular way purchase or sale of a financial asset, is not applicable, which was suggested by the submission um, as a potential view. So, what does this man- mean exactly? First, let's talk about when the trade receivable is de recognized. Now, except when an entity transfers a financial asset, IFRS 9 requires an entity to, to de recognize a financial asset. When the contractual rights to the cash flows expire. Therefore, the entity would derecognize the trade receivable on the date on which its contractual rights to the cash flows from the trade receivable expire. Now, determining the date on which the entity's contractual rights to, to cash flows expire is a legal matter which would depend on the specific facts and circumstances. The committee, however, expects that an entity would typically de-recognize the trade receivable on the transfer settlement date. That is the date it receives the cash in its bank account, assuming that the entity's contractual rights to receive cash from the customers expire when the entity re- receives that cash and not before. Second, let's talk about when cash or another financial asset would be recognized. Now. IFRS 9 requires an entity to recognize a financial asset when, and only when, the entity becomes party to the contractual provisions of the instrument. Now in this fact pattern, the entity is party to the contractual provisions of an instrument, its bank account, under which it has contractual rights to obtain cash from the bank for amounts it has deposited deposited with that bank. It is therefore only when cash is deposited in its bank account that the entity would have a right to obtain cash from the bank. Therefore, the entity would recognize cash as a financial asset on the transfer settlement date and not before. Finally, the committee observed that if an entity's contractual rights to the cash flows from the trade receivable expire before the transfer settlement date, the entity would recognize any financial asset received as settlement for that trade receivable. So for example, a right to receive cash from the customer's bank on that same date an entity would not however recognize cash or another financial asset received a settlement for a trade receivable before it derecognizes the trade receivable so in summary the committee concluded that applying the relevant requirements in ifrs 9 the entity would de-recognize the trade receivable on the date on which its contractual rights to the cash flow from the trade receivable expire and recognize the cash or another financial asset received, as settlement for that trade receivable on the same date. I actually think that this analysis is going to be quite helpful for our constituents, not just for this particular questions question, but also when analysing similar fact patterns, as it seems that the underlying logic and thought process can be applied to a number of other similar fact patterns as well.
0: Okay, thank you. So that's useful, one to keep an eye on. Um, So I guess we'll be seeing what comments are received on these two new tentative agenda decisions and the analysis in them at a future interpretations committee meeting, as well as keeping an eye out on developments in the board's project on lease liability in a sale and lease back in a future episode of IFRS Talks. Um, But in the meantime, thank you, Carsten, for coming along and sharing your insights with us once again. And to all our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Waterhouse Coopers LLP. This content is for general information
1: purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.